Thank you, Tony. Thank you all for coming. Um, I actually live up on Orcas Island, and I've been up there for 25 years. I did live here for uh, 10 years, and uh, this is a, it's, it's a little bit of a, like a homecoming for me to be here tonight because uh, when I lived here in Seattle in the 80s, um, in fact, very early in the 80s, I bought a big old wooden schooner that you're going to hear a little bit more about later. And I started a nonprofit educational organization on that boat. And in the wintertime, I lived on it in, in uh, Lake Union. And I had no heat. So I used to go down to the middle of town when, it were, when Elliott Bay was down there. And I would spend almost all my weekends down there. Um, and I, in fact, made contributions for the heat because I felt guilty about coming down there and using that space. But um, so I have, um, I have long, long, very fond memories of Elliott Bay. In fact, Tony mentioned that this is, this is a very podium that's been around, I guess, for 30 years or more. And uh, so when I, well, in my first book, when I was here, I probably read from here. And another interesting story in the Elliott Bay archive is um, I came to, um, uh, jo here, Joseph Campbell here um, before he became super famous. In fact, there was 10 people in the audience, and he read from this podium, and I was there with the ten, among the 10 people. And interestingly, his book, Here with a Thousand Faces, right, um, that was written, I think, in 1949, and it, it was um, something like 40 years later that that book first appeared in the New York Times bestseller list, 40 years after he wrote it. Anyway, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all. And Sonia is here from KOW. Thank you, KOW, and, and your interest in uh, my work and other people's work. So I have some images and stories and a little bit of science, a short video to show, and also um, afterwards, if you have questions, I'd be happy to take those. So a lot of people don't know what this image is. Um, in fact, most places around the world, although there are some, this is a tidal bore. And a tidal bore is when the tide comes up a river in the form of a wave or a solid wall of water. And what you're looking at here, we're about, by the way, about 50 miles from the ocean. This is the Chentong River in China, just south of Shanghai. And uh, right here is low tide, and that's the sun reflecting off the clear water on the river. And this, of course, is the bore, the tidal bore, that's traveling at about 15 knots from left to right, up river. And this tidal bore can be felt about 150 miles up the river. And uh, then here are a few people on the jetty on the side. So a tidal bore, again, is when a tide comes up the river in form of a wave. And there's actually about 100 or more of these around the world, many, many more than I ever imagined when I started this research. There's a bunch of them in uh, the UK, in India. The closest one to us is probably um, a Cook Inlet in Alaska. And that one, they surf. And they also surf another one on the Amazon River that gets up to 15 feet tall. And that one can be seen and felt about 500 miles up the Amazon. But the Chentong is the largest in the world. And it gets up to 25 feet tall. And it comes in on every tide twice a day, and it's done that for over 2,500 years. There it is in full bloom. And it gets up to 25 feet tall when it's coincident with a large storm in the East China Sea. And uh, of course, they can't predict that. They can predict the arrival of the boar generally, but they can't predict when it's going to be co coincident with a large storm and be sometimes twice, three times the size that it normally is. And when it does do that, it typically jumps the jetty and floods acres and acres of some of the most valuable farmland in China. And every year, people die here. They're flooded. They're, they're swept away to their death. In fact, um, just a few years ago, 200 people were lost in the tidal bore. So what you're seeing here is it's jumped the jetty, and uh, all those people and cars are going to be swept away in a matter of a second or two. So the tidal bore has such a long history in China. 
that um, the first tide chart in the world came out of this place in about 1057 in the current era. And it was etched in stone to predict the arrival of the boar. And that was over 200 years before the first tide chart appeared in the West for the London Bridge. So before I go on, I want to uh, just mention three amazing facts about the tide. And you know, I can tell the story of my journey in a lot of different ways. But one way I can tell it is just jumping from one amazing fact to the next that kept pulling me deeper and deeper into this research. So the first one is that the tide is a long, low wave that travels around the world at the speed of a modern jet. 450 miles per hour. And we don't experience it as a fast-moving phenomenon. I mean, anything but, right? If we go out to the coast, if we stay there long enough, what we'd see first is, say, low tide, which is the trough of that wave. And then about six hours later, we would see the crest of that wave, high tide. And then another six hours, we would see the trough again, low tide plus six hours, the crest again. So about 12 hours from crest to crest and trough to trough. That's the wave passing by at 450 miles per hour. It's just that it's so long and low, we don't experience it as fast moving. Tides create friction, a lot of it by rubbing against the ocean floor. It's a lot like us when we rub our hands together and create heat. In the case of the tide, some of that is dissipated into the water, that friction. But most of it is transferred into energy that slows down the rotation of the Earth. So by a very small amount every day, the Earth is turning slower, and our days are getting longer because of the tide. About 400 million years ago, our days were 21 hours long, not 24. And by the same energy, it works as a torque on the moon's rotation and is throwing it out of orbit. So the moon is getting further away from us at the rate of about 10 feet in a human lifetime. Again, many millions of years ago, the moon was much closer to the Earth. And there's good evidence that the tides were 100 to 200 feet and completely washed over the planet every couple hours. Very inhospitable place to live if there was life during that time. So I like um, the poetry of that, that, that the, the moon that causes the tide is being pushed away by the tide. So one other fact before I move on. Uh, for 99.9999% of human history, we had no idea how the tides worked. You know, it really wasn't until the end of the scientific revolution when Newton and his colleagues gave us the laws of planetary motion and gravity so we could get a finger hold on the science of it, the real mechanism of it. Yet for all those years prior to that, I mean many, many, many thousands of years, um, our ancestors that settled along the coast, because that's where it was easy to make a living, they acquired a massive amount of practical knowledge about the tide. Much, much more than we have today, in fact, because they lived there, their survival depended on it. They didn't know the mechanism, they didn't know the science of it, but they knew what was gonna happen when the moon appeared here, or a storm came in from there, or a wind, or whatever. They knew when the largest tides of the year would be because they knew they could get down to get a sea urchin or a chitin or something like that. Yet you can imagine all the stories and there's a chapter in the book about this but um, just a couple of those stories. For a long time many people thought that there were vents in the bottom of the ocean that was a web all the way around the world. So when the tide went down here it went through one of those vents down at the bottom of the ocean and then came up somewhere else. And then when it came in, it came up through those vents. So it was this whole web underneath the ocean floor. 
And Leonardo da Vinci was convinced it was breathing, the breathing of a huge beast in and out every six hours. He was so convinced of that that he tried to calculate the size of its lung. Right? This is a 13th or 14th century, not that long ago. So, as Tony mentioned a little bit, I, I grew up in California on the California coast near Malibu, and I was surfing, sailing, diving, and pretty much living on the beach. And I remember always having a tide chart in my back pocket because I always was watching to see what the tide was doing. And then I moved up to Oregon and uh, built a small boat and sailed it in the Pacific and the Atlantic. And then in the early 80s, I bought this old wooden schooner that I told you about earlier and started a nonprofit education organization on it. And this is a 65-foot schooner, about 75 feet overall, built in 1923, all wood, halibut schooner. And uh, so for, for many, many years uh, on that boat, we sailed up and down the coast from here to southeast Alaska, around Haida Gwaii, around Vancouver Island. And we do these seminars on the boat, week long, sometimes 10 days, sometimes three days, on almost any subject you can imagine, like natural history, Northwest Coast Indian art, culture, mythology, photography. We even had James Hillman on board, who's a psychologist that took over for Carl Jung at the Zurich Institute. And he taught a seminar about the roles of animals in dreams when we were up in Frederick Sound floating among the whales and the orca, I mean the orca and the humpback whales and um, salmon and so forth. So a lot of different seminars and we had a, a wonderful time during those 11 seasons, but one not so wonderful time was going aground in a huge tide and gale up in southeast Alaska. And I had, we were coming back from the seminar, Richard Nelson was on board, who's a naturalist and writer and anthropologist. He's been here before. And uh, it was a beautiful day like today, and I heard on the radio that a gale was due. So I picked this pr really protected anchorage on the north tip of Kruzoff Island, not very far from Sitka. This is the outside part of uh, southeast Alaska. And uh, we went into this anchorage, and, and sure enough, in the middle of the night, this gale showed up, and we dragged anchor all the way across the bay and slipped into the mud on the far end. And I woke up in the middle, middle of the night and, of course, immediately noticed that something wasn't right. And for, for those of you who have boats, and I imagine most of you, you know the feeling of walking on a boat that's afloat. There's a hollowness or a resonance. It's, it's, uh, it's very hard to describe, but it's very clear when it's not there. It feels like you're walking on concrete, right? Well, that's what went on. And I've been aground many times, I mean many, many more times than I even care to admit, probably unlike any of you. Uh, and almost always, well, I should say always, it's been innocuous. We just wait for the next tide and you float and, and off you go. So I knew that if the tide was anywhere near low and on its way up or whatever, it just, we'd come back up and I could reset the anchor and nobody even knows. This is like two or three in the morning. But if the tide was high, because we were already aground, uh, it could be disastrous. This is a place that has a 16 or 17 foot tide. And uh, so I went into the pilot house and, and uh, read the tide chart over and over again, because we were at the top of a high tide, at the top. So there's no worse place for us to be because I knew that in the next six hours, 16 feet of water was going to disappear in that bay. So Crusader would go all the way down and all the way back up. I was in my underwear. I had rubber boots. It was blowing a gale. It was dark, and I had 13 paying passengers on board. So we got everybody off the boat, and there was grizzly bear sign everywhere. So we posted somebody with a rifle, and uh, I stayed behind with a couple of crew to just to tend everything as we went down, thinking again, we're going to go down, then back up again. Uh, but I was wrong. <laughs> we went all the way down and got stuck in the mud. And the boat filled with water when the tide came back up. It didn't pop up. It just filled with water. 
And we sent everybody on shore back to Sitka on a fish boat, thinking this was the end for, for the boat, for sure, and for, for certain the trip, of course. And I stayed behind, and, and it, you know, really for you know, 14, 16 hours, the boat finally popped up. And there it is about mid-morning. The boat finally popped up, and we got pumps in her, got all the water out, rebuilt the, the battery banks, flushed the engine with fresh water, and actually went back to Sitka the next morning under our own steam, and went out on the next seminar three days later. So I, I like to say that this was uh, uh, the moment when this book began. Um, it's not completely true, but, but it's, it is true that I got the tide out of Crusader, but I, but I couldn't get it out of my head after that. I, I really, I wanted finally to know what was going on. You know, I knew the moon had something to do with it, but not sure what. So uh, I thought that I'd read a book or two, an article, and learn everything there was to know about the time. Uh, but again, I was wrong. The more I read, the more fascinating, the more complex, and the more poetic it became. So I, I just kept going deeper and deeper into it. And pretty soon, a couple of weeks turned into 10 days, I mean, excuse me, uh, 30 days, and then a couple of years, and then 10 years, and then 15 years, and so on. And um, I ended up committing about eight years ago to write this book. And the reason I wrote it was really that, that I love reading pure science, white papers, all that. And I see the poetry in the pure science. Um, but what I wasn't getting in my research was um, the human story, the human element, the really rich, deep, cultural and spiritual connection and story that humanity has with the tide, with coastal living and the water. And so I wanted to bring that story in with the tides, with the science story. And, you know, I had no idea, I had no plans initially to write this book. Um, it just um, kept evolving. And basically, the book is a journey of a sailor and a writer trying to understand the tide. And I took some element of the tide and I went around the world somewhere where it was most dramatically at play. So, and then I write the stories if I'm there and I'm, I'm meeting people and trying to find out, well, what is it that's going on right here? And of course, um, for the first chapter, actually it's the second chapter, but this is a chapter on the historic and cultural mythological beginnings of tide thinking. This is Mont Saint-Michel in France. And Mont Saint-Michel is completely surrounded by water, tide wrapped. It was built in the seventh century. And what I wanted to do here was meet the monks and sisters that have dedicated their lives to God, to a spiritual practice here. But they kerplunked themselves right in the middle of this phenomenon that happens every day. So I thought, surely there must be an influence of the tide in their practice. So I wanted to interview them, but I, I couldn't get to them the first time I went. And a lot of the places I went to, I went to more than once because I couldn't get the story the first time. I'd knock around a little bit and find out that maybe there was a thread or maybe there wasn't and then have to leave and come back again. And sometimes I went back three or four times. So I left the first time in Mont Saint-Michel. This is, by the way, on the west coast of France in Normandy. It has the largest tide in mainland Europe of 45 feet. And this whole area is quicksand, sand and quicksand. And when the tide is out during a large tide, large tide meaning high highs and very low lows, you can't see the ocean. It's 10 miles away. And when it comes in, it comes in like galloping horses, as a legend tells it. So I left there uh, not having a chance to talk with the monks but I befriended a guide who helped me translate letters. And over the course of about two years, I finally got permission for a silent lunch and a half hour interview. And I got to pick the time, so I went during the largest tide of the year, midwinter, and uh, I had my silent lunch, 
and the half hour, half hour interview turned into an hour. And it was a wonderful time, and this whole chapter wraps around this interview, going there, talking about the mythological, poetic, cultural history, and this interview with the monks about their relationship with the tide. And then for a chapter on sea level rise and the tide, I went to two places. This one is the San Blas Islands that are just east of Panama. And there are about 350 islands that stretch almost all the way down to Colombia. And they're occupied by the Cunayala Indians. There's about 35,000 Cunayala that live on these islands. And as you can see, they're very, very low-lying coral islands. And the Cunayala basically live with a tide at their ankles every day. There's not much tide there, 10 inches, maybe 12 at times. But their elevation, I think the, the largest elevation in the San Blas Islands is like two and a half to three feet above sea level, right? So they, they're basically a wash in the sea. And it comes into their village and goes out regularly. And the Kuna have two stories about the tide. One of them is a traditional story that tells them that the tide is a spiritual visitor from another dimension. Come to check up on the village. So it comes in, and if everything is OK, it goes. It leaves. It recedes like it normally does. But if it's not OK, the tide will stay. The spiritual visitor will stay. And then they have sober-minded scientists within their community that tell them if sea level rises three feet in the next 50 years, as it's conservatively estimated to do there, they're going to lose all their island homes, everything, and they have to move. So they own a strip of land on the Panama mainland, and they're starting to develop that. And they are making this move with both these views in mind, both that this is a practical issue about sea level, but it's also a spiritual issue that needs to be worked out within the community. For the same chapter, I went to Venice, Italy, which of course is on the other end of the spectrum, a modern city. And Venice was founded, I think, in the seventh century, current era, and it's had tide flooding problems ever since the beginning. Here's San Marco Square today, and it floods about 70 times a year. That's like, what is that? One, that's a quarter of the time. And, um, or a little bit, I guess one-fifth of the time. But uh, these are called passerellas, these wooden platforms, and they're always stacked around Venice. And Venice, remember, is a walking city, no cars. And so all these narrow cobble streets, and these uh, passerellas are stacked. And when they know there's going to be a large tide, and they know, everybody knows, like we, you know, they live with the tides there like we live with the rain. And... Uh, the Venetians all have rubber boots, and a lot of them have hip waders. When they know it's going to be a large tide, the, um, the waterworks people come and set, uh, set up these passerellas so everybody can walk above the water a little bit. And then there's an extreme tide in Venice. The last large tide, really large tide, uh, that happened in Venice was in 1966, so a long time ago. So the general feeling there is they're going to be hit again like that anytime soon. Now, Venice has an unusual problem um, that their, their sea level rise is, is exacerbated by the fact that they've been extracting groundwater there for a long, long time. So they're pulling groundwater out, and the land is sinking. So combined with sinking land and rising water, their sea level rise is, is exaggerated. They stopped. Um, their um, groundwater extraction maybe 20 years or so ago, but the ground, the, the land is still sinking fast. So one of the differences in the, the problems or the solution between Venice and the San Blas Islands is that Venice happens to be in a lagoon. So there's Venice right there. And of course, this is the Adriatic. We're all the way at the north end of the Adriatic. And these are um, 
uh, barrier islands all the way along here that basically protect Venice from the largest storms and waves. So what they're doing now is they're building gates for these three openings. And those sit at the bottom of that, those openings, so commercial traffic can still come and go. And when they know there's going to be an exceptionally large tide, these gates come up. Now, this is a project that resulted from about a 20-year public process. And they've been under construction for maybe 10 years or so. It's called the Mose Project. It, they're not complete yet. And in fact, I was there seeing the, the, um, this one being tested. And I, I imagine, my guess is, maybe in the next five years, they'll be operable. But of course, the San Blas Islands, they don't have this option. You know, they're an island community. They can't, they have no barrier islands. They can't just go out there and build a wall. They pretty much are stuck with moving as are a lot of other South Pacific and Indian Ocean islands. Another interesting thing about Venice is that they went through, I think, as I said, a 20-year public process, and this was their solution. Um, but within that solution, they figured this was only going to be good for 50 years. And after 50 years, everything would be different. You know, the politics would be different, the technology, the money, sea level rise, tides, it would all be different, and there'd be a whole different kind of technology and um, solution to sea level rise at that point. So they're going on probably 15 years into that 50-year period. So hopefully they get it operating before that 50-year period um, comes up on, upon them. And then for a chapter on tide energy, I went to two places also. This is the Orkney Islands, just north of Scotland. And they have a, a group there called the European Marine Energy Center, EMAC, which is the largest testing site in the world for wave energy and tide energy. And what they do, like a number of other places around the world, there's there are not that many of them, three, four. What they do is they set up all the infrastructure so uh, devices like this can be tested. So they've got all these cables in the ground, anchoring devices and so forth, so that an engineering firm like this can come and drop their device in the water, plug in, and test it. And um, this device here is uh, um, Open Hydro. I believe that's what it is there. And, and this is the size of a human being right here, one of those red canisters. This device, by the way, is exactly the same device that Snohomish we're planning to put and test in uh, Admiralty Inlet. Um, that project got um, aborted maybe a couple of years ago, but I write about it quite, in, quite a lot in the book because they did a lot of testing and they were getting ready to put these devices in and then pulled the plug on it because of money in development, not, not because they wouldn't work. So um, this is the other place I went, Chile for this same chapter on tide energy. And Chile is kind of on the other end of the spectrum as the Orkney Islands. Um, it's got tremendous tide energy resources, um, but nothing in the water yet. A lot of incentive to develop because they import most of their energy. And um, there, there are small communities all the way down the last third of Chile that could really use small community devices that could pretty much supply all of their electricity. And then for the largest tide in the world, I went to the Bay of Fundy. And the Bay of Fundy has a record tide of 54 feet, 6 inches. Now, that's not everyday tide. That's a record high tide. And I went here, in fact, the kind of the guiding question of this chapter is, why would there be such a large tide? And the Bay of Fundy is not just 6 inches or a foot larger than the next largest tide. It's 10 feet larger than the next largest tide. So really extraordinary. And there's, you know, ostensibly just one place in the world that has that. So I wanted to find out what was going on. And I went here actually four times, four summers. And what you're looking at here is uh, the flats, really red clay, muddy uh, intertidal zone. And then here's the tide here traveling across the flats and up. 
Now, what I learned in my research is that there is one other place that has a, a record tide of exactly the same amount, 54 feet, 6 inches. And it happens, coincidentally, to be about 1,300 miles north of the Bay of Fundy. Now, the Bay of Fundy is on the east side of Canada, just above uh, Maine. So this place is uh, north of Quebec, about 1,000 miles, and about 200 miles south of the Arctic Circle. And what you're looking at here is the ocean on the right and landfast ice on the left. So uh, the name of this place is Ungava Bay, the whole bay there, and they have this record tide that, um, in fact, is so equal to the Bay of Fundy that they contested the Bay of Fundy about with the world's largest tide probably about 20 years ago, and they hired specialists to come in to test because they were so convinced that they had at least the same size of tide. And after about five, six, seven years of testing, the, the Coast Guard finally just gave up and said, you know, it's the same. It's a tide. It's a tie. On Wednesday and Friday, the tide is larger in Ngava Bay, and on Thursday and Sunday, it's larger in the Bay of Fundy. So we're just going to call it a tie, and that's the way it's going to be listed everywhere. So in fact, that's how it's listed. So what I learned when I went up to the Arctic, and I went up there during the summer the first time, and this little tiny Inuit village called Tsuyak, which is kind of the heart of where they tested and found these large tides, um, I spent about a week there. And I was on my way back in a place called Kujuak and waiting for my flight. And I overheard a conversation um, between two Inuit people about going underneath the ice to hunt for fresh blue mussels in the wintertime. And they do that at just the right tide, just the right low tide, just the right ice conditions and weather conditions. When it's hollow underneath the ice, they go to chop a hole and they go down underneath. And that's what you're seeing here going on. This is that gentleman, and I finally got permission. I mean, he actually invited me to come join him. And again, it took a couple of years, and he finally said, yes, come, it's right. And I grabbed all my gear, and I took off in an airplane, a large plane, smaller from Quebec, and then finally in a tiny little Cessna, cargo plane with me and a bunch of Coca-Cola and ammunition landing at his village in Kangasuiak. And I spent a week with Lucasy Napaluk, and we went down in two or three of these caves. And basically what's happening here is Lucasy's on the left, and he's got a long steel rod sharpened on one end for chopping ice called a torque. And then that's me on the right. So he's investigating these holes. And there he is sliding. That happened to be an exceptionally wonderful day, but he's sliding down there to um, test out that hole, see if it's safe, see if there's lots of muscles. And I've got a, a short reading from that chapter I'd like to share with you. So I got on the back of his machine, his snowmobile machine, in his village of Kangasuiak, which is about 150 people. And we had driven about five miles uh, towards Hudson Strait out of his village. And there's nothing around. We're just in this wilderness area. Lucasy stops and turns off the engine, asking me to wait while he pokes around. No, he says, returning. Not right. Several minutes later, we stop again. This time he comes back with a hint of excitement on his usually stolid face. We gather the shovel, ladder, and torque, and hike over a bank of buckled ice, stopping at a long, steepled fracture. Lucasy squats for a closer look at a jagged opening. Satisfied, he removes his jacket and chisels at the fracture for half an hour until he breaks through, shaping a hole about 20 inches in diameter. He wastes no time, no strokes. The window of opportunity opens a couple hours before low tide and snaps shut when the tide comes in four hours later. This is a window no one wants to miscalculate. Lucasy drops the 10-foot ladder into the hole and again asks me to wait while he inspects the cavity. His caution, like that of any good hunter, is reasonable. 
but I am not at all prepared for the feeling of being left suddenly alone while my guide vanishes down a dark hole. I take in hesitantly just how alone I am and just how vast and beautiful and deadly the frozen landscape is. The bay's surface appears quiet and still, but in fact the tide keeps it in constant motion, breaking the silence now and, now and then with ghostly moans and jolting explosions like gunshot as the ice adjusts to the ever-changing conditions below. Before I can think about this too much, Lucasy bobs back up through the hole. It's good, he says, lots of muscles and room to forage. Lucasy climbs back down the hole and I position myself to follow, but the hole's too small for my, my thick layers of clothing. I back out while Lucasy pulls the ladder into the cave. He tells me to use the footholds he's carved in the hole. I can't do this either as there's no room to bend my knees. Lucasy, either indifferent to my conundrum or distracted by the plentiful muscles, disappears into the cave. It dawns on me that the only way down is to slide. So I do, I let go and drop, landing six or seven feet below the surface in a pile of ice and rock and seaweed. For several minutes, I am completely disoriented by this instant plunge from a bright, frigid upper world into a dark, warm underworld. My glasses and camera fog instantly. The air is close to sea temperature, 40 degrees Fahrenheit, nearly 60 degrees warmer than seven feet above my head. As my eyes adapt to the dimness, I notice the tent-like cavity has a five-foot-high center ridge. The sides taper out like a tent, leaving a forage area of about 20 feet wide and 100 feet long. The seafloor drops in places, allowing enough headroom for me to stand upright. Muted blue light penetrates from above where the ice is thin or fractured. Bits of seaweed and detritus cling randomly to the ceiling, evidence of the last high tide. A crab skitters across the rock and disappears under the seaweed. As I adjust to the eerie surroundings, my breath shallow and quick, I feel as if I have dropped into an entirely unknown and unexpected realm. As if the tiny hole carved by Lucasy allowed us to slip mysteriously not just under the ice, but beneath the surface of the sea. Here, in a dreamlike state, I feel inside the body of the ocean. I did get out. <laughs> so there, that's not a great um, exposure there, but that's Lucasy in the cave collecting mussels. And down below him, you can see that little shiny area. That is the tide coming back in. And that there's so much tide here that, that these caves, they call them quillnooks, they fill like a bathtub fills with a spout full. You can watch them fill. So I stood there um, and watched that little puddle grow and grow. Now, Lucasy collected about, uh, I'd say, six or seven of those bags full of mussels. And I collected one in that time, and one muscle, not one bag. I mean, I was not thinking about muscles down there. And that's his village, Kangasuyak. So I'm gonna shift just a little bit here, and I've got a short film, and then we'll have some questions. Um, you know, the tide is, you know, it's the, the tide is about a lot of things. And one of the interesting things that I found in my research is it's like, kind of like peeling an onion. You know, just when you think you've got it, really you've just peeled back another layer, and there's another layer, and another layer. And in fact, the tides have frustrated, and both interested and frustrated scientists all through recorded history. Aristotle, who lived on the Mediterranean, where there's hardly any tide, was so fascinated by the tide because he could see the current running where he lived, down at the base of the Adriatic. He wanted so badly to understand what was going on, but he couldn't figure it out. 
And legend has it that he finally got so frustrated, he committed suicide by jumping into the ocean. And he said, comprehend me since I cannot comprehend thee. It is a legend, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a palpable legend. It's lasted a long, long time. And um, about three years ago, I sat with one of the world's most renowned uh, tide modeler in the Bay of Fundy, a guy named David Greenberg. And I asked him at one point, you know, can you describe an aha moment for me? And he was uncharacteristically quiet for a moment. And then he said, uh, you know, I don't have aha moments in this field, only oh God moments when the tide does something that I totally didn't expect. So uh, that kind of comment ran through a lot of my research. You know, some of the most accomplished oceanographers in the world said things like this. But when it gets down to it, if you keep stirring this pot long enough, what the tide really gets down to is vibration. And more specifically, resonance. When something vibrates in response to something else. And that's what the oceans do. The oceans vibrate either a little or a lot in response to the different motions of the sun and the moon. So I've, I created this film that I want to show you that demonstrates this. When I was researching my book, I was surprised to learn that music can teach us a lot about how the tides work. I know it sounds a little far-fetched, but think about it. When you pluck the string of a guitar, the body of the guitar resonates. This also happens in the shower stall when you sing and you hit that note that suddenly sounds deep and rich. That's the shower stall resonating with your voice. The tides work the same way, although in this case, the musical notes are the gravitational pulses from the sun and moon, and the resonating body are the ocean basins of the earth. We think of gravity as a constant, and it is, but its strength varies depending on where the sun and moon are. The moon's gravitational pull, for example, is strongest when it's full or overhead or closest to the Earth. In the study of tides, these positions are called beats or pulses. But for our purposes today, let's call them notes. I wanted to find a way to clearly demonstrate this. So I asked some musicians to help out. What's happening here today is we're squeezing the whole universe down into the size of this chapel. You guys are the sun and the moon and these cans are the ocean basins of the world. Resonance is um, when something vibrates in response to something else. So it's very much like your instruments here and your voice. So that's what we're doing today. Those frequencies are very long, over 12, 24 hours, sometimes over two weeks. Your frequencies today look like this. You know, they're in seconds, right? These cans are all different shapes and sizes. Some are deep, some are wide, some are shallow. The smallest one's a sardine can. That largest one is a garbage can. It's just like the ocean basins of the Earth, all different shapes and sizes. And each ocean basin responds differently to the same astronomical note. And that's why you can have a tide on one beach that's big and then travel a mile down the way and you don't have much tide. It's because that basin is resonant with some note from the moon or sun, and the next beach a mile away is not. We're going to experiment with the notes that you guys play with your instruments, and how it excites or does not excite different basins right here in front of you. So in some simplified way, what you all are trying to do is get the salt to bounce. What you're seeing here is the notes of the clarinet are causing just those particular cans to resonate. And when those cans resonate, the salt moves. And 
let's continue going on one at a time. Can you find a way in, in your um, voice to activate these kind of one at a time separately? I think that did it. I think that did it. They're not all just going off, but it's yeah. a particular note that's hitting this one and that one and that one. Notice it makes a difference what note he plays, how loud he plays it, and how close he is to the cans or the ocean basins. Let's try the saw. Oh, there you go, the little, the little can. Why don't you go, Dimitri? That's the first time the large can has resonated. It's responding to the low frequencies of the tuba. Nice. Everybody join in. Let's just mess around and see what happens. The results of the experiment were remarkable. We created a miniature universe, and I think we got closer to understanding how resonance shapes the tides. Great, so uh, just a couple last comments and then open it up for questions. As I mentioned, uh, it really, when Newton and his colleagues gave us kind of the laws of gravity and, and uh, planetary motion, everything changed. And um, we've had about 300 years since then and uh, to learn more about the tide. And we know a lot, but we don't know everything. And there are still lots of mysteries remaining. And I'm just going to mention a couple of them. Um, one of them is that we don't yet know for sure what the relationship is between seismic activity, volcanoes and earthquakes, and the tide. I mean, it makes good common sense that there would be a relationship there. We've suspected it for many, many, many years, in fact, hundreds of years, but it hasn't been scientifically corroborated. I mean, not just the pull, the gravitational pull of the sun and moon on the planet, but also think of the tremendous amount of weight of the water moving around up, down, up the coast and then away from the coast. Uh, and then another one is in the area that's a field called chronobiology, um, time and life. And in the first chapter of the book, I'm in the Bay of Fundy and talking about a very small creature, a mud shrimp called a chorophium. It's about the size of a grain of rice. And it has two tide clocks in that little body, one that tells them what the tide is doing on a day-to-day -day basis because the tide is so ferocious there that they have to know when to come out and forage and then when to hide when the next tide is coming in. So that tide clock tells them what's, doing and what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And by the way, you know that the tide changes every day. It's a different time every day. So it's a sophisticated clock. And then it has a second clock that tells that little animal when the largest tide of the month is for spawning purposes. And again, that changes on a regular basis. It's not always the 15th of the month or the 20th of the month. So there's a lot of um, calculation that's going on here. And the interesting thing about this, there are many, many creatures, right, in the intertidal zone or coastal, even inner, uh, just you know, within a mile or so of the coast, that are tuned to these tide cycles. And we don't know where those tide clocks are in the body, and we don't know how they work. So there's a lot of research to be done here. And a lot of the scientists that I'd spoke with um, over my 15 years or so of research suspected that in time we'll learn that there are many, many other cycles that all living beings are potentially tuned to, 
we tend to tune to a solar day because it's so easy. It's light and day, heat and cool. It's a very easy cycle to tune to. But it's quite possible that we have within our bodies the capability of tuning to other, many, many other kinds of cycles, including a tidal and lunar cycle. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to take some questions if you've got them. Thank you. Yes. Well, I thought I understood tides, but last winter I worked at Seawall uh, doing construction there, and we had to synchronize our work with the tides. And I noticed that they were often not coinciding with the full moon. Sometimes they were a little ahead of the moon, sometimes they were behind it. And then we would get, they, they also weren't even. There was a short tide, and then, and then a higher tide, and then lower moon between that. Is that is that because of the resonance that you spoke of of Elliott Bay or the Puget Sound? Or or is it a larger sort of uh, gravitational sort of effect? So um, I'm going to repeat that question. Uh, the question was really about um, why the, the, the tide isn't necessarily full right when the moon is full, right, or, or, or overhead. And why are there variations basically in the tide? So that's that's it's a that's a really big question, and I do talk about it quite a bit in the book. But quickly, um, there's such a thing called the age of the tide, and and the age of the tide is a phenomenon where the tide can't keep up with the moon. So if we have if we were on this planet and there were no continents and the ocean was really deep and you didn't have friction. Basically, you would have a bulge right underneath the moon. So high tide would happen directly underneath the moon, and it would follow it all the way around the Earth. But because we do have friction, and the, the, the ocean isn't deep enough, and there's lots of continents, the, the, well, basically the ocean cannot keep up with the moon. So it's always behind. Or I shouldn't say that. It's mostly behind. And um, so this phenomenon called the age of the tide is a universal phenomenon. And some places, like here, our highest tides happen about two days after the full moon. And in Europe, um, high tide generally happens about 1.5 days. But there are places that, that where high tide doesn't happen for seven days after the full moon. And there are places when... It happens before full moon, just like what you're saying. So that's that's what's happening there. And the other phenomenon where you know you might have you know you have um, two tides a day and one is higher than the other. That's really because of the tilt of the Earth relative to the Sun and the fact that the Moon travels up and down on the equatorial plane, right? So it all depends on where these things are, and we circle around and through a large bulge sometimes and through a smaller bulge at other times. That's the simplified answer. Yes? Once a year, the predicted high tide in Fort Townsend is later than the predicted high in Seattle. It actually happened yesterday. And I've always wondered about that. It happens late in the summer, and it's an afternoon high. And I wondered if you ever noticed that or, or if you under, you know, know anything about that? Uh, so the question was about why would Port Townsend have a high tide before Seattle, right? Because or but after Seattle, after right, 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 right. So um, so generally, what's happening? Of course, I, the wave that I described is traveling. You know, the origin of our tide is really somewhere way off in the Pacific. There's a node. And the wave, the tide wave, circles around that node. And you can track it. It hits basically Bahia Magdalena in mainland Mexico first, and then it travels up the coast at about 450 miles per hour, and then it circles around. Well, imagine that it, it passes the Straits of Juan de Fuca in a matter of seconds, right? And some part of that tide is broken off and travels down in, you know, in Puget Sound and in through Admiralty and then down here. So you most likely any place that along the way would get a high tide before Seattle, right? It just makes sense. Um, and that's where the tides get 
Very, very complicated, by the way, because imagine that that little part of the tide that's broken off as the wave continues is traveling up in here, and then it's totally out of phase with the ocean, oceanic tide. So by the time it gets to Port Townsend, that oceanic tide is up in Sitka, right? And it's traveling around, and it's completely out of phase. So, so it gets very, very complicated. And in general, the further you get inland, the more complicated the tide. Now, that's a very long answer to your question, but the, the short piece of it is that in the end, um, you, you, have to, you have to unpack what's happening in any one of these places to understand the answer to your question. Like, why would Port Townsend on one day of the year, one time a year, have a tide that arrives um, after Seattle? And it's probably, probably because there's some relationship of the sun and moon that's acting like that, right? That's creating that. And it might be resonance. It might be because of some kind of a frictional thing. But I don't know the, the quick answer to it. But um, what I learned and what every scientist in this field has learned is that there are general rules, but there are so many anomalies that when it comes to the tide, even anomaly is kind of an oxymoron. I mean, there are double tides. There's, there's double high tides, double low tides. There's tides that are twice a day. There's tides that are one times a day. There's tides that are four times a day. There are tides that, like in Biloxi, where it's one time a day on one week, and then the next week it might be two times a day. So there's so many different variations. And you just, I mean, they're all, you can understand them, but you have to unpack what's happening right there to understand it. And then it might be different. 10 miles away. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. F, you, you first and then you. Well, yes and no. Um, yes, um, the tides have current associated with it wherever they are, but the, the, there are also the, the wind and heat driven currents that do not have anything to do with the tide. Those are the predominant world currents of, you know, traveling north and sinking and traveling back, yeah. Those are not tide generated. But there are internal tides. So uh, there are waves, tide waves traveling around the world, subsurface waves that are up to 1,500 feet. And they move like lava lamps all over the world. And they break on reefs and so forth. But they play a role in mixing and bringing cold water to the surface. And they also play a role, scientists are now finding, in global climate. That they are actually bring, playing a role in how these cold waters in the ocean are influencing our world climate. So um, yes. Yes. Um, I'm curious with Right. Um, that's a good question. Uh, so the question was, how have I integrated this into my lifestyle? Or how has it changed my lifestyle, maybe? Um, well, you know, I think uh, the main thing is just a, a, a greater appreciation for the processes at work. I mean, the brilliance of the universe, really. You know, I'm, I am a spiritual person, but, um, but I, I'm an empiricist, right? So um, it, it gives me incredible amount of joy. Um, deep joy to, to know what's going on and be a part of it. So that's, in that way, it's really changed me. Yeah. Yes. Are there any stories that didn't end up in the book either because of length or because you could never get the silent lunch? <laughs> uh, are there stories that didn't make it in the book? Oh, there are so many. There are so many. Um, in fact, um, I, when I write, um, probably like a lot of writers, I, I, I'm on my desktop, and one of, one of my files is what I call you know, garbage. And it's for each chapter. And I have a log, and then I have the document I'm working on. And that garbage file, um, not that it's all garbage, probably a lot of it is, but, but in that garbage, that, that is five, six, seven times larger than the document that ends up going to my publisher. 
<laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, there is one favorite bit. I, I was, I won't, the fourth chapter of the book was the chapter that is a heavy lifting chapter in terms of science because I go to the Royal Society in London and I'm talking about really the transition from the Aristotelian point of view about the world and to the Newtonian view, which is the scientific, scientific view that I described earlier. And um, so I was trying to make it interesting, and I, 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 I did a lot of different things. And one of the things I did in there um, was I pretended that I was a contemporary of Newton and some of the other folks that were part of the Royal Society in London, Haley and um, Christopher Wren and so forth. And um, I attended a, one of the society meetings and I snuck in, actually, and, I, and then I followed them to a coffee house afterwards because the hot coffee houses were just beginning to be popular in London, and you could get, for a penny, a bowl of coffee, a newspaper, and a pipe with fresh tobacco. So I snuck in, and I got my, my, cup, my bowl of coffee, and I listened in on their conversation. So I had to, I went on and on for five pages or something, and then it, and it, it didn't work. So <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you very much. I so appreciate you coming out. Yeah.